Welcome to the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. To learn more about Salem Alliance, including life groups, gathering times, and other resources, visit us online at salemalliance.org. Today's talk is given by Brian Candelo. Good morning, church. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. It's so good to see you this morning. For those of you joining us online, it's so good to be seen this morning. I don't, we're glad you could join us in that way. Hey, uh, as we begin, I want to take a moment and remember some of the games that we played as kids. Because in those games, there was a lot of important and not so important life lessons that we learned through the repetition of those games. When you play something again and again and again, you're going to pick up certain things. So let's recall a few of those. How many of you way early on remember playing shoots and ladders? Yes? Yeah, shoots and ladders taught us that life is full of ups and downs. Sometimes you're going up the ladder, sometimes you're sliding down the slide. How many of you played the game Monopoly? Yeah, Monopoly taught us how to build our empire and crush our opponents. <laughs> it's just what it did. How many of you played the game Sorry? Yeah, Sorry taught us how to apologize and not really mean it. <laughs> I'm so sorry you have to start over. How many of you played the game Clue? Yeah, Clue taught us never trust anybody. <laughs> Watch your back. How many of you played Twister? Yeah, I don't know what we learned, but I'm sure it wasn't good. <laughs> I just don't think so. But what I really want to focus on is the game of life, because this was a big one. How many played the game of life? Yeah, the, the real thing about the game of life is it taught us how to succeed in life. The game of life teaches us how to win at life. It has a very clear, prescribed pathway. You get your education, you get your job, you get married, you buy a house, you fill up the little car with a bunch of stick kids. <laughs> and then you do normal life things, like run for mayor or find buried treasure. You know all the things that you do normally in life. And there were, on those spaces, payday spaces. You lived for payday spaces because you were trying to accumulate as much as you could. Now, there, there were some give to charity spaces as well. And, and when you landed on the give to charity spaces, you always felt like that was a loss because it kept you from the goal. You see, the goal of the game of life is to accumulate as much as you can so that in the end, you can retire at millionaire estates. Nobody wants countryside acres. You're trying to get to millionaire estates. Now, this isn't just the message from this game. It's a message that washes over us our entire lives in the unnoticed and in the unmistakable, in the advertising and sometimes educationally, that the way to win at life for all of us is to accumulate resources to take care of ourselves and to hope somehow that we will get a lavish retirement. Now, this message has worked its way into the fabric of our lives in such significant ways that it almost seems like the reasonable thing to do. This is how we are supposed to live. This is the goal of our lives. It's reasonable. But what do we miss when we live in this reasonable way? You see, church family, sometimes we hide behind what is reasonable, and it keeps us from doing what is righteous. 
Sometimes we hide behind what is reasonable and it keeps us from doing righteous, what is righteous. And so today, we wanna talk about courageous generosity, but courageous generosity as a form of evangelism. Courageous generosity as a form of evangelism, this kind of generosity that expands the borders of the kingdom, that pushes out the boundaries, that brings light to dark places, the kind of generosity that is not reasonable, but it is righteous. Because generosity doesn't exactly make a lot of sense all the time. Generosity is this lavish, liberal, bountiful giving, and it isn't just giving of our finances, it's our time and our talents and our resources, and when we do this kind of giving well, we open the door to have conversations so that people can hear about Jesus. We're closing out in our series, Demonstrate and Declare. And we've kind of defined evangelism as this, the revelation of the good news to people. And it happens in many ways. In the first couple of weeks, Rob talked to us about how we can declare and that we need to kind of throw out the script that we used to lean on and we need to listen better to Holy Spirit and to the people that we're talking to. And last week, Ashley talked to us about justice and she said acts of justice reveal the good news of Jesus. And if you didn't catch that message, it's a fantastic message and I recommend that you listen to it Probably not right in this moment. I would prefer that you listen to this sermon before you get to that sermon. Anyway, and today we're going to talk about courageous generosity as a form of evangelism. So if you have your Bibles, <clears throat> excuse me, we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And this is a passage about generosity, financial generosity, but the principles apply to all of our resources. A little bit of background on this passage. There was a famine in Jerusalem. And so Paul's writing to the church in Corinth and he's asking them to give generously towards this need in the city. And he says in the previous chapter to what we're gonna read, he says, you're excelling in so many different ways. Your faith, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, your love, they're all great, but now you need to excel in generosity. And even at the beginning of chapter nine here, he says, I don't need to even write to you about this. Because I know that you're eager to do so. I know that you're eager to give. Your enthusiasm has spurred others on. I don't even need to write you. And when you say I don't need to write you, but you still do, it means you need to actually tell them something. You know, it's like when you tell your kids, I don't need to tell you to put that away, but you're still saying it because they need to hear it. He wants to make sure that their passion becomes practice. He wants to make sure that their determination results in doing. So we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 6. It says, remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the scripture says, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two good things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met 
and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. As a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God for your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ. And so as we look at this passage today, I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about our mindset, our motivation, and our mission. And our mission is ultimately to be generous so that others can hear about Jesus, but we have to start with what our mindset is, and we have to understand what is the motivation for us to even be generous. And we see right away what the mindset is. Our mindset should be what verse 7 says, that we should give, not reluctantly, not as a result of pressure put on us, but we should give cheerfully. And if I'm completely honest, I don't think that those words usually describe my generosity. And I don't think I'm alone in that because I think we have a typical mindset. We have a mindset that's different than verse seven. Our mindset says, we've worked hard, we've earned it, and so we will use what we have accumulated to take care of ourselves because millionaire estates is out there somewhere and we're gonna get there. But verse six in this chapter talks about seeds and crops and it gives us an agricultural illustration and I think this is a great starting point as we think about our mindset. We need to think about agriculture because it really points out a couple of flaws that we have in our mindset and I think the first flaw that we have is this idea that I achieved it on my own. The first flaw that we have is that I achieved it on my own. We can kind of believe that the accumulation of our resources is just solely based on our stunning intellect and industry. That's what we can think sometimes. But here's the thing every farmer knows. As we're talking about agriculture, we need to understand farmers, right? They're at the mercy of so many outside factors. Farmers can do everything right and still not have what they do work out because there's factors that are outside of their control, like sun and rain and storms and hail and bugs and blight, even though I don't know what blight is. That can happen. There are things outside of their control. There are things outside of our control. It isn't, I did it, so I deserve it. It's really, we need to get this mindset of, I'm just a small part of it. Everything we have is from God. And we can't take pride in the accumulation of our resources when we're using all of his resources to get our resources. Think about everything that we're reliant upon. We are reliant upon our family, our abilities, our intellect. The, the place where we were born speaks a lot into how well we will do in life. And don't forget that we're actually using the air that God provided to do all of these things. Verse eight says this. It says, and God will generously provide all you need, and I think that word need there is really important. He will generously provide all you need, then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. So that first mindset of I earned it, we see that, wait, God provides all that we need. And then the second thing is he provides it so that there will be plenty left over to share. And I think it exposes the second flaw in our typical mindset and that that's that my abundance is for me. Because we think that we've earned it, we feel like we can do what we want with it and most of the time doing what we want with it is stockpiling it, is, is kind of hoarding it. 
Several years ago, the New York Times put out an article about the expansion of self-storage facilities in the United States, and it said that there's 2.35 billion square feet of self-storage space in the United States, which means that every single person in the U.S. could stand under a roof of a self-storage space at the same time. And 50% of what is in those self-storage spaces are things that don't fit in the average home. And the average American home has doubled in size in the last several years. We're putting things in self-storage. And then they ask, like, okay, what are your reasons? And the third most popular reason was was the best one. The third most popular reason for storing things in self-storage is because they are items I no longer need or want. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? Do we ever stop and ask ourselves, why do we have so much? And I I don't usually do that because I think I've been conditioned, we've been conditioned to see the things that we don't yet have, not the things that we already have. And so our focus is far more on getting than it is giving. Verse 8 says God provides. Verse 10 says God provides. We need a shift in this mindset. We we did not earn it all. We didn't achieve this on our own. And, And our excess isn't just for us, it's for others. And so we need to think about what our mindset is when it comes to generosity, and we need to shift that. We need some kind of motivation that helps us change. And here's the thing, though. Courageous generosity is difficult because it hides behind things that sound like virtues. It's difficult because it hides behind things that are reasonable. A penny saved is a penny earned. I plan ahead. I'm saving this for a rainy day, which in Oregon is every day this time of year. If I don't take care of myself, how can I take care of other people? There's wisdom here. Hard work, planning, saving, thoughtfulness. These are good things. These are valuable things. But sometimes we hide behind what is reasonable. And it keeps us from doing what is righteous. You see, the reasonable almost always pushes us toward self-protection but the righteous pushes us toward reliance upon the faithfulness of God. Verse 10 says that God will produce a great harvest of generosity. And just the word generosity, just in this verse specifically, is the word righteousness. God will produce a great harvest of righteousness. Our generosity will allow God to produce a great harvest of righteousness in us. And righteousness is just this idea of being who we were originally created to be. So often we think that our generosity really only changes other people, but our generosity changes us as well. Most of the time when scripture talks about us being generous, it's because God doesn't want the things that we own to own us. And so he asks us to be generous, not because he needs our resources. God speaks galaxies into existence. He doesn't necessarily need us to give what little we have, but he asks us to give because it's one less thing that has control on us. He asks us to give because it produces righteousness in us. He asks us to give because it leads to freedom. 
I've been rereading Lord of the Rings because I didn't have anything else to read, so I picked it up again. And at the very beginning, we find Bilbo the Hobbit who has the one ring. It's his obsession, his precious. And it, he doesn't possess the ring. We understand that the ring begins possessing him. And so the wise wizard Gandalf comes to him one day and he says, it's time for you to give that up. It's time for you to give that away. And Bilbo gets angry and he gets defensive and he says, it's mine and I found it and I'm going to hang on to it. And Gandalf says this, I'm not trying to rob you, but to help you. It has got far too much hold on you. Let it go and then you can be free. It's got far too much hold on you. Let it go so that you can be free. And that should be motivation enough, this harvest of righteousness that our generosity begins producing in us. But we find our true motivation in verse 13. This idea where it says that generosity is, is born out of an understanding of the gospel. Courageous generosity is born out of a deep understanding of the gospel. It's this appreciation for the generosity shown us at infinite cost to Jesus, this lavish gift that's freely given that's so far beyond anything we could ask or even imagine. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we read, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Not in material wealth, but in so many other great things. You see, the gospel reminds us that our value is not our net worth. It isn't our bank accounts, our social status. It's not our stuff or our titles. Our possessions, our positions, our powers do not define us. We are defined by something that someone else did for us, not what we do for ourselves. And so generosity is just a sign that we understand the gospel of grace, that what has been given to us freely, then we get to freely give away. And so this is a passage about generosity, but it's also a passage about gratitude. It's a passage about giving, but it's also a passage about perspective. And we need to remember all that's been given to us. I've been reflecting even about Salem Alliance in the past couple weeks and how so much generosity has allowed us to be in this space. It's allowed us to be where we are today. And I do want to pause and say thank you. I want to say thank you to those who have given in faith so that so many could grow in faith. We're not trying to build an empire here. We're not trying to build Salem Alliance as a name that's above other names. But we're trying to create a space where others can experience the grace that's changed us. The generosity that allows other people to hear about Jesus, that's the mission. That's our mission. We need to reshape our mindset. We need to understand what our motivation is so that we can be on mission. Verse 12 says, two great things happen when we give. One, needs are met, and that's a beautiful thing. But also it says, and God will be praised. And God will be given glory. Now, I do want to say that, that we aren't generous in manipulative ways. We, we don't give expecting anything in return. We give because we love people, all people. And if we only give to people that we think will respond to the gospel, then we're really just perceived as only helping ourselves, only being self-serving. We give because we love. We give because generosity reflects the character of Jesus. And we give... Because it opens the door for spiritual conversations. 
We give because we're expanding territory in God's kingdom. We give because we're creating pathways to share about the generosity that we've received. And it looks a lot of different ways. And this is how courageous generosity is evangelism. Sometimes we give to organizations that expand God's kingdom, and it's, it's fairly simple and straightforward, and I think that's a beautiful thing, and there's a lot of great organizations that are sharing grace and truth about Jesus. But we also want people to see it in our own lives, how we live and how we serve and how we share. We want people to wonder why we're so countercultural. And people are going to see it. People are going to see that you're not amassing wealth for yourself, that you're giving things away. They're going to see your hospitality, which is costly. And that's going to open the doors for conversation. They're going to see your volunteering, where you're spending your time and talents not just serving yourself, but serving other people. And you're going to have conversations. People are going to see that we are a non-anxious presence in the community. People are going to see that we're trusting God for provision. You see, the way that we break the idea of self-protection is to trust that someone else is protecting us. How we break that self-protection is trusting that someone else is protecting us. People will see that we aren't obsessed in building our own kingdom, that we're far more concerned about a different kingdom, a lasting kingdom, an eternal kingdom, and conversations will happen. As disciples of Jesus, the way we live our life is different than the game of life. Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke is a guy who researched righteousness in the Old Testament. He found kind of one defining characteristic in what a righteous person is. And he says this, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. You see, church, oftentimes we have to lose power to gain influence so that we can be a part of expanding the kingdom, so that we can be a part of bringing light to dark places, bringing access to people who have no access. Because there's a whole lot of rooms at millionaire estates that need to be filled up with people in our neighborhood in the world. And we want to be a part of that. We don't want to hide behind what's reasonable. We want to be a people who excel in doing what is righteous. And so I want to give us just three quick things to hang on to so that we can grow in a generosity that leads to conversations about Jesus. First, I would say this, surrender. Jesus didn't break into the world so we could get more stuff to make our life better. Jesus broke into the world to be our life. And so we surrender our lives to him, daily surrender our lives to him. And when we surrender all of who we are, we're surrendering all of our stuff. And we want to be really mindful of, okay, Jesus, I didn't earn all this. It's because of you that I have this. How can I use this for your glory? I surrender it all to you. The second thing I would say is give until it doesn't hurt. Recently, my daughter was cleaning out my office, and she had this little pamphlet she found, and she's like, I don't know where to put this among your books, and she threw it on my desk, and it was a pamphlet from the founder of our movement, A.B. Simpson, about generosity. There was a beautiful quote in it. He says this, the old proverbial exhortation that we should give till it hurts falls short of the divine philosophy. Here we are taught that we should give till it doesn't hurt, and if we give enough to really reach and kill the core of our selfishness, 
It will slay the thing that hurts and make it a divine and eternal joy. That's beautiful, isn't it? We got to kill the core of that selfishness so that our giving becomes joyful. And I don't know how much we need to give to remind ourselves that it isn't ours. I don't know how much we need to give to kill that core of selfishness, but we need to lean into that. And lastly, I would just say this. Invite someone along to serve with you. Your accountant is probably the only one who knows how financially generous you are, but your neighbors, your family, they're going to see what you spend your time on. They're going to see your generosity in the way that you serve. They're going to see whose kingdom it is that you're building. And so bring them along with you so they can truly see whose kingdom you're building. Bring them to church. Volunteer with them in Omni or Glow or Feed Salem or Roars or SFR. There's so many beautiful things to get involved in. Is there a need in your neighborhood? Apply for a Love the City grant and do it together. And begin having those conversations. Most of the world has heard of William Tyndale or at least Tyndale Publishing. All the Bibles in the pews, if you open up the first few pages, it will say Tyndale Publishing. The English Bible that we use, we owe in some part to William Tyndale. He was kind of the first to go after it in English. Recently, the BBC ranked the 100 most influential Britons of all time. He was 26th on the list. There's a lot of really influential people on that list. We have heard of William Tyndale, but most of us have never heard of Humphrey Monmouth. You see, in the 1500s in England, all of the Bibles were in Latin. And it was the way that the church kind of kept a tight rein on doctrine and teaching. And quite honestly, things were going a little bit sideways. And so Tyndale had this burning desire that people have the scriptures in their own language. And he had the ability to do so. He was a brilliant linguist, but he just didn't have the resources to make it happen. But Humphrey Monmouth did. He believed in Tyndale. He believed in his vision. And so he gave him a room in his house and a place to study. And he was always feeding him. And he was bringing like-minded merchants together to raise funds and support so that they could all do this together. And all of these connections became the impetus for writing and printing and distributing, smuggling the word of God in the English language to the people in England. And this would light the fuse of the English Reformation. And countless people would hear about Jesus. Countless people would come to faith in Christ because Tyndale did the work. But without Monmouth, there wouldn't have been the work for Tyndale to do. Most of us have heard of Tyndale, but we have Monmouth to thank. And honestly, I hesitated in sharing this story because it it just seems too grand. It just seems too big. This literally changed the world, but I believe that every small act of generosity that we get to do does the exact same thing. It changes the world when we give and host and sacrifice and serve and share in, in small unseen ways or in seen ways. When we do things that open up paths and doorways for us to share, we get to demonstrate and declare the good news of Jesus and we are changing the world. Not everybody can be Tyndale, but we can all be Monmouth. And may we not hide behind the reasonable. May we excel in the righteous. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for 
your word. And first and foremost, we thank you for your generosity to us. We thank you for your grace, so freely given at infinite cost to yourself. And we praise your name. We worship you. We thank you, Jesus. And I pray that you would continue to produce a great harvest of generosity in us, a great harvest of righteousness in us. Free us from being so tight on our possessions. Give us eyes to see where needs are. Give us courage to act. Give us boldness to share. And we pray that the resources that you've given us will be used to bring fame to your name. Jesus, thanks for letting us be a part of it. We love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Alliance podcast. We hope you have been challenged and inspired. Salem Alliance is a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. To experience other messages and discover more about who we are, please visit salemalliance.org or download the Salem Alliance app. And again, thanks for listening.